Good morning and welcome to the Adult Sunday School class. Uh, this is the new normal and hopefully it will be a short new normal, but at the, at the current time, it's expected it will be at least several weeks that we will do our Sunday School class from here and uh, so we'll be doing it on the internet, which will be available to you, usually by the middle of the week, and you can access it at your leisure. Uh, just as a establishment of the context, uh, I will say that, that uh, this will be a continuation of what we were doing prior to uh, the new normal coming up on us. Uh, I was uh, talking about uh, something called the Lordship versus the Non-Lordship doctrine of the church and how that uh, fits in with what we talked about in the, the last quarter which was talking about which was about discernment. Uh, so uh, I hope that, that you remember some of that and I will continue that and we will uh, hopefully we'll be able to get back together in person soon. Uh, as, as usually is our uh, practice we will open with prayer. Father, we know that uh, your love for us is enduring and it never ends. But even when by age or by weakness of body or even some other catastrophic event, uh, we no longer find ourselves able to work. Uh, we pray each day, Father, that you remind us, that you, you, you keep us awake to your will for us, that even We ask the Lord that you would give us energy to enjoy your creation, to attend to those neighbors and, and loved ones that others neglect, and to contribute wisely to the work of the church. Father, we also ask that even when we can offer nothing but our prayers, that you will remind us that our prayers are indeed a useful work that you want. So we help ask, Father, that you would help us to always live in service to you and to your Son in whom we find our hope and our joy. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. As I said, there's a, there's a context, and the context is something that, that uh, is important in, uh, in relationship to today's lesson. So I wanted to establish that context again. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul talks to Timothy there and is reminding his young preacher friend and protege uh, how important it is to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, if you look up the, 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 the term rightly divide, uh, it doesn't mean that we sort of separate topics out within the body, I mean, within the, the context of the scripture, but that we look at the totality of scripture and see how it is related to each other. Uh, one of the first verses that I want to turn to this morning before we get into the charts is, is 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, talking to the church there, is talking about the gospel message itself. In the first verse, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. And if you hold fast to that word which I preach, unless you believe in vain, for I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also receive, and that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and, he, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
In those four verses, Paul establishes what is called the gospel message. Now, that's not the only place in the New Testament, of course, that the gospel message was articulated. But this is one place where we can find the four truths of the gospel message all in, in, a, in just a few sentences. Now, those four truths, of course, are, first of all, that you and I are sinners. The second truth is, is that Christ is the Savior. There is no other alternative for reconciliation to a holy God than through Christ Jesus. Christ is our Savior. And he is our Savior by virtue of his substitutionary atonement, meaning that he gave up his life in exchange for our reconciliation to a holy God. And then finally, the fourth truth is that after he gave up his life, God resurrected him from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. Now, all believers, all, all people who call themselves Christians, subscribe to those four truths. We, we unanimously agree that those are four truths of the gospel message. And that they are necessary for one to say that they have true faith. Now, the discernment part comes in, in our discussion today, around... Is that all there is? Are, are, are the, the grasping of and the assimilation of those four truths, are those the only things that we must do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I mentioned earlier that there are actually two camps within the evangelical church. One of them is called the no-lordship camp. The other is called the lordship camp. And, and to explain what that means is that the no-lordship camp accepts the idea that those four truths stand alone and that those are the only things that are necessary for a believer to have true faith. And there are many people within the evangelical church who in fact subscribe to those four and no other. They say those are entirely standalone. That they, they need nothing else. Everything else beyond that is something called theology, and it's not about theology, it's about salvation. So they say that our salvation is based on those four truths and our acceptance and adherence to those four truths. Now there's another camp. This is the camp called the Lordship Camp, if you will. And these, believers, uh, they, these folks, again, which there are many, are, are people who believe that there are other things within the context of Scripture which lead us to the, to the understanding that there are other things that we must do in order to, be, in order to have true faith. True faith, is, as, as people like John MacArthur, and that, and whose book we're using as a resource for this quarter, John MacArthur says in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, says that true faith accepts not only the truth of the four, the four truths, but also accepts the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 14, 7 through 9, and if you're listening and you have your Bible handy, turn to Romans 14, verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 says, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
So we don't, we don't stand alone. We don't do anything simply for ourselves. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we live outside ourselves. We live in Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Again, just flip right back over a couple of pages if you've got your, your text with you there. Verse 1 in, in uh, Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So if we, if we leave 1 Corinthians on the four truths that are articulated there and go back to Romans, we see that there is much more in, that is involved in being a faithful servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can, it's, it's not a static set of facts that we accept that stand alone. It is also the person of Jesus Christ that we must accept and all that that entails. It's a, John MacArthur called it what he called the redemptive dynamic. And in his book, he chose chapter 9 of the book of John as a chapter here we're talking about uh, uh, a man born blind. It's, I always sort of marvel at the, the providence that, that happens with our, with our Sunday school class. Uh, certainly, uh, this would have been a, this particular subject I would have talked about, you know, six or eight weeks ago, uh, when when Tyson, Pastor Tyson, was teaching about something completely different. But we've been delayed six weeks, and now we're talking about this particular thing at exactly the same time that Tyson is talk, talking about it in his series of sermons, the Seven Miracles Found in John. Uh, th those are providential matters. Uh, not, not coincidental matters, not uh, uh, things that, that just happen. God decides to do those things uh, in, in ways which defy our imagination. So let's look at, at, at uh, John. If you have your Bibles again, flip over to John, the ninth chapter, and that's where we're going to start. But first, let me establish the context of what uh, is being talked about here. redemptive dynamic means that we can not only do we have to accept those four truths of the gospel but in the, in, in the context of those four tr truths there's also a, a dynamic that takes place between our understanding of those truths and acceptance of those truths and our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as we accept him as our Lord the context is what's taking place here in the ninth chapter First of all, we know that if we look back just a, a, a few verses prior to the beginning of the ninth chapter, we'll find that, uh, that Jesus has already revealed himself on several occasions repeatedly to the Jews. He's told them who he was. He's indicated both overtly and covertly that he is the Son of God. Reaction has become more hostile from the Pharisees in John 8, 13, if you just Look there, it says, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, but your witness is not true. So they call him a liar. 
And the more he did to prove himself in terms of, or to validate his contention of being the Son of God, the more irate they became. Uh, I, I, this, this past week, as, as after Jim said we want to do this, uh, reading back through this, and, and again was sort of struck by giving what's going on in, in our uh, country today about this, the, the Trump derangement syndrome. Jesus knew about the Pharisee derangement syndrome uh, long before Trump came along. But it seems like that just, just like as a, our current president, the more he says, the more enraged the opposition gets. That, of course, was certainly true uh, when it came to Jesus and his relationship with, this, with the, the Pharisees. The more he said to validate his own uh, identity, the more irate they became. So Jesus accuses the Jews who are, who are denying that his witness is true. He accuses them of being in spiritual darkness. And the Jews attempt to stone him in this particular case. You'll read a little bit below uh, verse 13 there in the 8th chapter. Uh, they pick up stones when he says that they're lying. They pick up stones and they're going to, to stone him. But because it is not his time, as he says, uh, he's able to escape uh, that particular uh, event. And he goes on and he goes over to chapter 9. And now in chapter 9, Jesus, looking at, at uh, verse 1, he has an encounter with a man who's been blind since birth. If you look at the first two verses there, you'll see that it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who's blind from birth. Now, most of the miracles, or at least those healing miracles that Jesus had done up until this time, had to do with infirmities and disabilities which had not been uh, genital, meaning that he had, he had not, uh, they had not been that way since birth. This was a man who was born that way. It was a part of who he was from the time he had been born. And his disciples asked him, when, he, when they came across this blind man, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And of course, that's one of the things that, that the Pharisees often tried to do themselves, is to tie sin to some act to, or some disability that, that the person might have. And so if you had something wrong with you, whether you were diseased, whether you were possessed by demons, whether you were blind, whether you, whether you were the, uh, the paralytic, as he dealt with in chapter 5, it always had to do, the question was always raised as to what did you do to cause God to, this, to, to, uh, to place this upon you. Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed into him, or revealed in him. Now, there is no necessarily there is no connection between sin and suffering. We know that God in His great wisdom and in His justice and in His mercy and in His grace, sometimes we think that we can identify uh, you know, why something has happened to somebody. Whether it's the coronavirus or whether it's a tornado or whether it's a hurricane or whether you know, we always look, there are a lot of people anyway, who look and say, well, wonder why God is doing this particular thing. In this case, of course, it was natural for the, his disciples to say, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents? Meaning that they thought there must be some connection. But Jesus dispels that notion. 
It goes on down a little bit further. And he does something which is, which at the time seemed a little bit unusual, if you will. Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. The night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And of course, what he is, he is essentially saying there, that, that there is a time for all of us. And, and certainly him, because he was more aware of his own particular circumstance than, than anyone else, and certainly more than we are personally aware of ours, but, but there's, there's a truism there, and that, and that is that the approach of death should quicken us to be good, to do good. And so when, even, even then, that's what Jesus was saying. He says, I, I must do the things that I need to do and the things that I'm capable of doing, the things that I was sent to do, I need to do them while it is day because the night is coming when no one can work. So he picks up, uh, he, he bends down, he's by the blind man, he spits, he spits on the ground, he makes clay with the saliva, and he anoints the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he applies that, and then he directs the blind man to go to the, the pool of Siloam and wash it off. Of course, the blind man didn't have a clue as to who Jesus was, didn't know why he was being directed to do what he was directed to do or what had been rubbed on his eyes, but he did as he was commanded. And of count, when we went, and he did, he was obedient to what God had asked him to do or what Jesus had asked him to do. He came back with his sight restored. Obviously, that caused quite a stir. The neighbors and those who had previously had seen that he was blind said, is not that, is this not he who had begged? Isn't this the same guy that's been begging for all these years? The blind guy that we know? And of course, some of them said, uh, you know, it, it looks like him. I'm not sure it's him, but it looks like him. And of course, the blind man speaks up and says, uh, I, I am him. I am he. And of course, they were inquisitive about how did you get your sight, your sight back? You've been blind since birth. You were born that way. And his answer was a very simple answer. He says, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I did what he asked and I received my sight. Now what follows after that in the next several verses is sort of a judicial interest that was shown by not only the neighbors who saw him first, but then after the neighbors had finished questioning him, they then directed him to go to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, in their Jesus derangement syndrome, were looking for some reason to invalidate what Jesus had done. He had given sight to the blind. So in their haste to find something wrong with what Jesus had done, they, felt they focused in on the first thing that came to their mind, and was that... He had performed a miracle. He had restored sight on the Sabbath. On verse 15, you'll see there that it says that, that then the Pharisees also asked him again, I had received his sight. He said to him, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. And in verse 16, they say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. The blind man gained his sight. Obviously, the Pharisees did not. Their logic was flawed there about what Jesus had done. 
Of course, in verse 17, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? Because uh, he opened your eyes. And of course, again, the blind man gave a very simple answer. Must be a prophet. But what other explanation could I possibly give for a man who's able to do what Jesus did? He must be a prophet. And of course, he didn't call him Jesus other than the fact that, that he knew that this is the man who appointed, uh, who, who put the uh, uh, clay on his eyes. And of course, in verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him, and so they called his parents. Again, in an effort to try and invalidate what was performed as a miracle, and to try and call it a fraud, they called his parents and said, there must be something here. Maybe he wasn't really blind. And so they called his parents, and they, they inquired of the parents, was he, was he really blind? You know, what happened? And of course, they tell him essentially the same thing. One of the things that I, which certainly caught my attention again, which I thought was, was uh, very telling, as, the, as, as all of the Jews in those days uh, were very careful in what they said to the Pharisees because the Pharisees had the power to excommunicate them from the, from the temple. And so they were being very careful in what they said. And so they said those things only that, that they could not be denied. And they wound up in, in the, the Inquisition by telling the Pharisees, listen, our son is a grown man. He can answer for himself. And so they sort of deferred their answers back to their son. We jump on down to the latter part of the story there. Is that Jesus, they, they ultimately rejected the claim. They concluded that Jesus not only was a fraud, but he was, uh, he was not a man of God. And so Jesus at that time in conversations with the, with the Pharisees, they said, since the world began, it's been unheard. This is the 32nd verse. Says, since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was blind. Of course, this is the, the, uh, the blind man who's saying, is, uh, is, is, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then they answered and said to him, and this is the, the, the final blow, if you will, as they discredit what the blind man's own personal testimony was. It says, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sin, and are you teaching us? Again, they go back to trying to make the connection between the man being blind and the fact that he was a sinner. So you, a sinner, don't tell us about this man who supposedly perform the miracle. And of course Jesus, and so they, they cast him out. But the 35th verse, he goes and says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Very direct question. And the man answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Of course, he had every reason to believe in the miracle that happened to him. He knew it was a miracle. He had experienced that miracle. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. 
Another way of saying, it's me. And then he said, Lord, I, I, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world that those who do not see may, may see, and those that, may, that see may be made blind. Of course, what he's talking about there is here we, he has a man who, who came into the world blind. He did not see. But in, his, in his, that dynamic relationship that he had with Christ, Christ applying the clay to his eyes, directing him to go to the pool of Siloam, and that, of course, the miracle being performed that he regained his sight. So he was blind, but now he sees. And then we have, on the other hand, we've got those who see, but who are still blind. The Pharisees were given every opportunity to believe, but they continually reject what Christ has not only showed them, but has told them. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. And what he's telling them is that you've had every opportunity to believe your eyes, to believe your ears, but you refuse to believe. So you're still blind. You say you see. You say you understand. You say you know but you do not know. So in conclusion for today, do you believe? Of course, uh, I'm sure that, that, that universally, you, those who, who listen to this uh, uh, Sunday school class, those who are a part of the Sunday school class, those who are members of the body of Christ, hear and subscribe to the four truths of the gospel, say they believe. But the, the question always is, remains is that do, are you like the blind man who not only believed from a physical point of view, but he also believed from a spiritual sight point of view, meaning that, that once he saw Jesus and Jesus asked him, do you believe in God? He says, well, tell me who he is, and, and yes, I will believe in him. And Jesus says, it's I, and he says, yes, Lord, I believe. And of course, I think that, that, that all of you who, who listen all, certainly all of you who, who I know personally, that, that uh, you say, yes, Lord, I believe. And you not only have the, 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 the subscription to the four truths, but your lives are reflective of the fact that you believe. As he tells us there in, in, uh, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the removing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And of course, that's the, the part that John MacArthur is, is trying to impart in his book. Is that we cannot be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot be true believers and have true faith unless we've been changed. And so I leave you with that today, and we'll close with prayer. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word of truth. And may we be strengthened not only in your word, but also by your word, so that we remain faithful to our calling in Christ Jesus. Because it's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Amen.